we are expectant that your spirit will pour himself out into our hearts even now on Palm Sunday. And God, I know that there's the man or the woman, the student, the young adult in the room right now who doesn't trust you. And they don't trust you because of their family of origin. And there's a story there where there's hurt or pain. And that story uh, has for them built a perception, a perspective of you in their mind. And so they have a hard time trusting you because their father abandoned them when they were young or their mother used shame to motivate change and behavior in their lives or they were hurt by a pastor or a church when they were young and so they don't trust you. And so their expectations of you, Lord, are off. And each one of us has brought in expectations for what you are like and what you will do for us. And those expectations can't be separated from our family of origin story or our unique circumstances and our everyday life, Lord. But we trust that you've got the power to come into our hearts and to reevaluate what's going on and take away all that is old and introduce what is new. There are some dark pasts in this room, but some bright futures as well. And so, Father, as we just look to you and seek your face above all things, we're praying for bright futures in every heart and in every mind of your church, of your people, of your kingdom. And so, Father, as we open your word and we explore the implications of this ancient text with realistic implications for today, may we have a heart that's open a mind that's open, hands, palms that are open to say, Lord, if you want to take some old things away and introduce some new things, you want to take my dark past and retire it forever and introduce a bright future, all based on a correct understanding of who you are, that you are above our origin story, that you are better than what we experienced in childhood, that you are perfect, you are good. Oh, there's so much here, Lord. And there's an expectancy in this church's spirit even now. So I pray that your power would stir that, Lord. We love you. We're expectant. And we thank you for Palm Sunday as we gather together. And the people of God together said, Amen. Would you turn your Bibles to John chapter 12? The text will also be on the monitors to my left and to my right. Uh, this is the text for the morning as we jump into Palm Sunday, the introduction of Holy Week. It's exciting. John 12, 12 says this. It says, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of of Israel, all of you have a perception of Palm Sunday. If you grew up in the church, you might have memories of your church. Maybe there was a children's choir on the platform and they had palm branches and it was a celebration of sorts. And the palm branches would be waving and kids would be singing and 
there would just be this like introduction to Holy Week and the expectancy level was raised in the room for Good Friday and, and then Easter Sunday. But if we look at the text, we can see in John 12, 12, the next day it says the great crowd that had come for the festival. What festival? What are they talking about here? What's John referring to in his passage? John is actually referring to a very um, ancient, now, but very important dinner party for the Israelite nation that they participated in every single year. This festival was the Passover feast. It was the Passover festival. And if you're a little less familiar with the word of God, that's good. That's okay. I'm glad you're here. That's the point. So the Passover festival was celebrating when the Holy Spirit passed over the homes of the Israelite families when they were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. You see, the nation of Israel, the Hebrews, were enslaved, and, and there was an occupation where they were enslaved in Egypt. And it was brutal, and many generations were born and died in slavery in Egypt. And finally, God raised up Moses, and God used this man to create the greatest uh, prison break scene ever. And you maybe have seen the movie, The Prince of Egypt, and that's the story. That's the beautiful story. And so here we've got Moses, and, he, and he, he cries out to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, 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 no. And finally God's like, I'm not accepting your no any longer. And so instead what God does, instead of accepting his no's, is he begins to introduce plagues into Egypt. These horrible situations, horrible scenarios, living conditions that are unfathomable today. And none of them moved Pharaoh's heart until, until God said, I'm going to take the life of every firstborn son in the nation of Egypt. Because you don't control me, Pharaoh. I'm in control of this entire situation. So the Holy Spirit moved amongst Egypt and the Egyptians and the Israelites and the Holy Spirit passed over the homes of the Israelite community that took blood from a lamb and painted around the, the door frame of the house and the Holy Spirit passed over. This was Israel's Independence Day. It was their 4th of July. It was something that was intrinsically connected to their story. You, you cannot consider Israel's story without considering Israel's escape and freedom from Egypt. Because the Holy Spirit passed over. That's worth celebrating. And so the Israelite community celebrated that every single year. Instead of fireworks, like what we use, they had a big, big, big feast, lasting many days. And at this time, that crowd was gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate that Passover. They were partying, man. Like, they were there to party. Like, they were there to celebrate. All those years ago, the Holy Spirit passed over our nation and did not take the life of the son that was first born into that Hebrew family. So there's the context. 
Now you understand why there was a crowd in Jerusalem. Now you understand why there was a group of people that was in Jerusalem. Actually, it was probably over 2 million Hebrews would gather in Jerusalem at that moment, at that time, to celebrate the Passover festival. But there was a heightened occasion. There was a heightened occasion at that festival. The reason it was heightened, because there was a new expectancy that Jesus, who had totally thrown the entire culture upside down with his radical teachings and his radical way of life, and he comes and he completely introduces the kingdom of God spiritually at that time. And all the Pharisees were like, what? Who is this guy? He's threatening my power. Why is he here? Why is he here? Now, at that same time, it was actually King Herod that had full control over Judea. It was King Herod that was intimately aware of his defense budget. King Herod knew his military's reputation. King Herod had the white stallions bedazzled with jewels, chariots of gold, polished, like that apple on the back of your iPhone, like that polished. There were swords, chariots, and horses, and military might. And so when this two million Israelites heard that Jesus was descending from the Mount of Olives to rightfully take his place as king of the Jews in Jerusalem, their expectancy of that would have been connected to their own heritage and their origin story of freedom from Egypt because they knew their story. They knew their heritage. So can you imagine the two million plus Israelites in Jerusalem awaiting Jesus to come down from the Mount of Olives to take his place rightfully as the king of Jews in Jerusalem? I can't wait to see how big Jesus' horse is. Can you imagine Jesus coming down with his chariots? Can you imagine the guys and the gals that were in that crowd waiting for Jesus to descend? Finally, just like Moses got the attention of God in Egypt, Finally, Jesus of Nazareth is going to blow the power structures apart and overthrow King Herod. Dude, can you imagine how big his horses are going to be? Can you imagine how decorated his chariots are going to be? Can you imagine his arsenal of swords? Like, you can see a couple of good old boys in that crowd, right? They've got their palm branches, and they're waving these palm branches. Now, why palm branches? Well, one, in this context, uh, there was a lot of palm trees because it was the desert. And so it was a, a common thing. Lots of palm branches in this ancient agricultural context. But palm branches were actually used during wartime throughout all of ancient history as a sign of victory as a sign of power. So they'd take these palm branches and they'd, they'd wave them like this 
because it caught the eye's attention. What do you wave during the 4th of July parade? Right? The American flag, a flag so intrinsically connected to America's history, while a palm branch would have been connected to wartime history. Something that they would wave and, oh, Jesus is coming. Jesus is going to take over. Yeah, guys, this is going to be awesome. He's going to show up riding two horses like a couple of boots. And his chariots are going to be on fire. And his swords are going to be sharp. He's going to overthrow King Herod. You can imagine how many people were expecting something of Jesus to show up with military might to match or be supreme in power over that of King Herod's. I mean, after all, this is what autocrats and dictators have done for a century, right? We've seen this around the globe throughout history. Uh, leaders will take the military arsenal, their defense budget, and put it on display as a sign of dominance. We've seen this for 100 years. This is nothing new. Every country's done a version of this in some form or fashion. And they put it in front of the media so that the world sees and knows that country's power dominance. So this group of two million Jews are expecting Jesus to show up the way God showed up in Egypt. It can't be disconnected from their origin story, their heritage, their story of freedom from Egypt. Here comes Jesus down from the Mount of Olives. Oh, his chariot is going to crush Herod's. What's the text say? Verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Talk about a lesson in expectations versus reality. What? Can you imagine what was going through the heads of the two million plus Israelites as Jesus descended from the Mount of Olives, not on a white stallion, not connected to a chariot, not followed by dozens and dozens of horses of power and a symbol of might and chariots of fire and swords of power. I can imagine being in that crowd. Here comes Jesus. Wave your palm branch. Is that Jesus? Is that Jesus? No, that's just a homeless guy and a donkey. Jesus is going to come. Don't worry. Verse 15. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. This is a reference to Zechariah 9.9, when this very moment was prophesied many generations before Jesus' descent from the Mount of Olives. John throws this in there for the readers to be reminded of what's going on here. So perhaps you can picture yourself in that crowd of two million plus Israelites awaiting the descent of Jesus from the Mount of Olives, hoping that he will overthrow King Herod. I want my country back. I want my way of life back. I imagine some of their palm branches and some of their hosannas went from Hosanna 
Who's that? <laughs> I imagine some of their palm branches going from victory, Hosanna to... So that's Jesus on the donkey. Boy, this military party really died. I imagine some of those guys and gals dropped their palm branches when they realized that Jesus was not going to overthrow the power structure in place. He was not going to use military might to take on King Herod. He was not going to use power in the way that humans perceive power to accomplish his purpose. Look at verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Well, why not? Why didn't they understand it? I mean, Zechariah 9.9 says, it prophesied about that moment. Why did they miss that? Why not? Why didn't they get it? I don't understand. Literally, the scriptures literally say in Zechariah 9.9, he'll be riding a donkey. Your king, your Messiah. Not just a donkey, but the Greek in the text is actually a wild donkey. We're talking about the lowest possible form of transportation in that day. He ain't riding any like special electric bike. He opted for the broken down, hand-me-down like razor scooter that your cousins gave to you because they're dented and dinged. We're talking about the lowest form of transportation possible to Jesus. Why didn't they get it? Why were their expectations of Jesus to be that of King Herod? Why were their expectations of Jesus to overthrow King Herod with military might and a show of power? In Matthew's tradition, which we're not in, we're in John's, it says that Jesus began to weep when he entered Jerusalem. Why? <laughs> like, why would Jesus weep? Like, another show of, uh, of like, why are you crying, man? <laughs> like, like, come on, stand up and be strong. Like, why are you crying? I'll tell you what I think. This is just Luke's opinion. Take it for what it's worth. I think Jesus realized how dramatically his own people misunderstood why he was there. I think Jesus began to weep in that moment because he realized, oh my gosh, they have no idea what I'm doing. They don't have a clue. They're expecting me to use the same kind of power at King Herod's disposal to overthrow um, you know, that oppressive regime, that oppressive monarchy. They don't get why I'm here. My own people. It might be a little different if they weren't my own people, but those are my own people and they don't get it. They don't get it. And so people start dropping palm branches. Can you imagine that party like really dying? It's just like, best parade ever, Jesus coming from the Mount of Olives. And then he shows up and he's like, Yo, what do you guys want to do now? What do you guys want to do? Where do, you, where do you want to go? I mean, you want to get something to eat? I'm kind of hungry. I imagine that crowd disbanding ever so slowly. I imagine that crowd dropping their palm branches when they realized that the homeless man on the donkey was the new Messiah. Can I ask you the principal question of the morning, dear friends? 
what horse are you riding? Because whatever horse you are riding tells me what your perception of Jesus is. It's your understanding of who Jesus is to you. And like the Israelites, it cannot be disconnected from your story, your family of origin, your own heritage, your upbringing, your unique circumstances. This will be how you represent Jesus to Indianapolis. If you're in the room and you're just Jesus curious, uh, these words aren't necessarily applicable to you now, but if you are in this room and Jesus is your Lord and Savior, these words are for you. I think there's like a million people still in central Indiana that are disconnected from a local church. So my question of what horse are you riding will tell me how you represent Jesus to that lost person. So as a pastor, um, like the staff, we have like really funny and fun staff, like 10 of us. And because we're, you know, believing God for future breakthrough and anointing and outpourings, we've, you know, we've really started the process of what worked in startup doesn't work at scale. And so we're right now, the life of our church is all about the future. Like we're scaling into the future, believing God for radical outpouring in the future. And we have a big, bold vision of a thousand spirit-filled people added to Indiana by 2030. And but right now we're still a staff of 10. And that's beautiful because we used to be a staff of three. But when you get to a staff of like nine or 10, like that family dynamic, right? It goes from like, we're all there for each other and have each other's backs. And that is still true, but now the jokes start coming, right? The jokes start to come in and we have a, a very funny staff. We all like poke fun at each other. And it's, it's mostly me being the brunt of the joke most of the time. And I pin that up and I take it out on you. So these next comments are radical generalizations of human beings. So if you are offended with these next comments, you must tell the person next to you, Luke's just joking and he did not mean anything by it. The purpose of these next generalizations are levity, okay? So laugh at yourself a little bit. You're going to be riding one of two horses in 2023. Humans ride two different horses in 2023. And the first horse is the war horse. And someone riding the war horse for Jesus. I ride the war horse for Jesus. Like they probably said that in the gym. I ride the war horse for Jesus. Like they're, they're pumping iron as they say it. Like, even if they don't say this, their heart says, Jesus is going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to crush yours too if you don't repent. <laughs> Liars go to hell. Sinner. Like, there's just like some attitude in them. Like, there's just, they're fired up for the truth of the gospel. They, they know the truth of Jesus breaks chains because their chain was broken at some point in their own story. And they perceive Jesus as this powerful, mighty, like pumped up, like jacked. He's like, Jesus is jacked, ready to break chains and the name of the gospel can set you free. And they're riding that war horse. They love God's truth. Like these people will slay you with the word of God. But they wouldn't be caught 
dead washing someone's feet. Here's the problem with riding the war horse for Jesus. And frankly, there's been times in my life where like, bro, I'm on the war horse. Here's the problem. The war horse problem is that they sacrifice their witness on the altar of conviction while assuming the position of judge and jury reserved solely for God the Father. No one is immune to this, especially if you've had chains broken in your life. Especially if you've experienced the freedom and the power of the gospel breaking strongholds in your life. Like, there's no reason you wouldn't be like, Jesus is coming and there's power and might. And, and actually, that's good and beautiful. The liability, though, is that there's some witness that can be sacrificed on that altar of conviction, strong potent conviction. I did this once recently. I responded to a survey sent to me and I thought it was like a uh, anonymous survey. <laughs> and the survey was sent to me and it asked me if I would recommend this, this company to other clients. And I, I knew this company's value system and I thought I was anonymous. So I let them have it. Well, turns out that that company knew some people at our church. And guess what? I was outed. Like, Luke, did you know that, like, we're connected with these people? I was like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, because I was riding the war horse for Jesus, man. I was, like, letting them have the truth. But totally blew my witness. Blew it. Totally blew my witness. I had to send like an email. Like, I'm sure that survey hit a bunch of people that didn't know the Lord. And like, see, told you Christians are totally crazy. They're nuts. Look at these people. And that guy's a pastor. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of people that are riding war horses today. There's a lot of people expecting that Jesus is going to redeem Indianapolis through power and might alone. Now, the other side of that coin is the other horse, really, which is the what I call the Peace Corps horse. I've been here too. Jesus loves everyone and loves them just as they are, but does not love them enough to tell them the truth about their life. So Jesus has no standards. Jesus has no requirements of change in your life. He doesn't have any requirements whatsoever. Just love them. Put down your sword. Pick up your charity. Oh, these people love washing people's feet. These people are wonderful. They will make you feel so loved. I mean, after all, they're washing your feet, but they would never tell you the truth out of fear of offending you. Here's the Peace Corps problem. These people sacrifice the chain-breaking truth on the altar of accepting grace. Remember, these are generalizations and you can laugh at yourself. Both of these generalizations get it partially right and partially wrong. I mean, after all, it's God's message of grace that contains the saving power. It's God's message of grace his favor that he has on all people, I desire, God desires to save your soul. God wants you in his presence. 
And he knows the message of the gospel, this graciousness, this unmerited, undeserved favor that he has for you. Oh, he loves you. That's a powerful message. It's a message that can save. And God's message of truth contains the sanctifying power. So both horses get it partially right and partially wrong. God's message of grace contains the saving power, and God's message of truth contains the sanctifying power. So what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do, church family? He speaks the truth as he washes feet. He speaks the truth as he washes feet. Jesus rides a donkey because he doesn't have to ride a war horse. And he doesn't need to ride a Peace Corps horse. All of Jesus' power is completely under control. And so if you're like, Luke, I'm riding the war horse, man. Luke, I'm riding the Peace Corps horse, man. Look, if you're riding the Peace Corps horse, you need to know that Jesus is king. But if you are riding the war horse, you need to know that Jesus is a servant king. You follow me? Jesus is not solely king like King Herod was king. King Herod was king because there was a monarchy relationship, subject king. But Jesus is a servant king, one who leads and speaks truth as he washes feet. The servant king title is conflicting. It's, it's two titles that conflict when applied to someone like King Herod, but works in oh, perfect harmony when applied to Jesus. Consider this, dear brother or sister, that Jesus has nothing to prove. He's got no muscles to flex, no ladder to climb. Jesus is not intimidated by Herod. He's not controlled by people's opinion of him. And he's unprovoked by any mob-like social pressure at the time. He rides that donkey into Jerusalem while they were expecting him to ride a white stallion. He knows what he is doing. He finds out. He, just, he weeps out of a broken heart. My people don't get me. They don't get it. They don't understand. I'm not introducing a new power to overthrow King Herod's power. I'm introducing something completely different. He had nothing to prove. He's God. He doesn't have to prove himself to you. He doesn't have to flex muscles. He's God. He's not intimidated by Herod. <laughs> really? Herod? He's not going to cave to social pressure. Like, really, Jesus? A donkey? Come on, where's your Harley, brother? Right? Come on, give us the power. I believe we see a beautiful picture that when the closer we move into the presence of Jesus, the further he removes the presumptions that we have for him away from us. 
So the closer Jesus gets in our life, the further he distances you from your presumptions of him. And all of your presumptions of him are based in your family of origin or your unique circumstances in life that have shaped and formed for you a perception of Jesus that is probably partially right and probably partially wrong. So what is the moral of the story this morning, fam? It is to get off your high horse and get off of it voluntarily before you get bucked off involuntarily. I was a senior in high school when I thought it would be a good idea to take my senior prom date for a horseback ride. Now you gotta understand, in my family, so my, my mom, she took me horseback riding a couple of times when I was uh, just a kid. And I was, they were great experiences. Great experience, like twice ever. And so when I reached out to my friend and said, hey, can, can I bring my prom date? to your barn so we can ride a horse romantically through the cornfield. You know, I just think this is really going to impress her. Now I was just like, I rode a horse a couple of times when I was a kid with my mom. And my mom had a horse. This is probably just in my blood. Like, this is in my family. I've got this. I'm ready for this. And so my prom date and I, we show up to this barn and she's like, oh, wow. You're going to take me for a horseback ride? I'm like, yeah, I am. I mean, I, we're talking about overconfidence that is just embarrassing, right? We call that pride. So overconfidence, this, 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 this pride, this overvaluation of my ability to ride this horse with my girlfriend at the time, and I couldn't wait. And so we got on the horse, and I'm like, I don't remember anything about riding a horse. So I was like, um, go. <laughs> and the horse didn't move. My buddy's like, you gotta, you gotta kick it, man. I was like, oh, okay. So I go, bam! And I kicked the horse, and it took off, and it bucked both me and my girlfriend right off. And what's worse is like, you would think that we would get bucked off into like the beautiful haystack. No, like God was just like, this is going to be awesome. And he bucked us into a pile of horse. I can't say it on a Sunday morning, right? Into a pile, into a pile of horse manure. And we're talking about the scripture, pride comes before a fall. I mean, that is the, like, right, that happened in that moment. Like, maybe a better way to teach that passage is, like, pride is the surest way something bad's about to happen in your life. There was this over the overconfidence that I knew what I was, there are some people in this room that have a over-evaluation, an, almost a, an arrogant-like confidence of, of who Jesus is because of your, of your perception of him based on your family of origin, for better or for worse, based on your unique, unique circumstances. 
Look at the passage in the middle of verse 16. It says, only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him, referring to Zechariah 9.9, and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Okay, so apparently the group of people that had witnessed Lazarus coming out of the grave, out of the tomb, they, they witnessed that miracle, was also there in the, in the crowd of two plus million. So like there was a subgroup within that like main group. It's amazing how heaven's pure power in that moment was demonstrating something to the Pharisees who thought they had figured out God's power structure. Might. Big defense budgets. Might. Might, 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 might. That is how we'll control the people. And so the subfaction of people that were in that two million people, they were like, we saw Jesus. We, we saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. That's him. The Pharisees like, oh crap, oh crap. This is going to build momentum. This is going to build momentum. Heaven's pure power always threatens structured man-made power on earth. I feel like my job today is to violate your perception of Jesus. So I want to do that with this exercise. This is an exercise done to me once, and it was beautiful. And it's an exercise um, born in a tradition of contemplation, but radically powerful nonetheless. And so this exercise will give you an opportunity to, I believe, reevaluate your perception of Jesus because there are humans in this room that because your mother shamed you and used shame to motivate behavioral change in your life, you've actually projected that onto Jesus. And now you're terrified that Jesus is going to use shame to motivate behavior in your life. And because your father abandoned you when you were young, when you were a child, you're terrified that Jesus is going to abandon you and worthy not of your whole life, but I'll keep him at a distance just in case he's going to hurt me again. You see how I mean? Your origin story, your family of origin, cannot be disconnected from your perception of Jesus today. And I think Jesus weeps over that. And I think Jesus' tears are connected to his desire for you to see him as he is. Letting Jesus be himself. You see how I mean? That he is the servant king. He's the king that doesn't abuse power. He's the king that has all the power and uses that power to wash feet. That is unlike Herod. Some of you were hurt by a church or a Christian. And so you have every reason to believe that Jesus is only partially trustworthy. 
And so your perception of Jesus is one of slight doubt. I don't know that Jesus won't abuse his power. I don't know. Because I've just seen it over and over and over again. Too many leaders that have authority have abused their power and hurt me. So I don't know. Or your mother, your father, aunt, uncle, whoever had like authority, influence over your life when you were a child, your origin story, you were at one time in your own way enslaved in Egypt. And that gives you a perception of Jesus. Partially right, partially wrong. And my job is to violate that entirely and ask for you to consider to allow Jesus to be himself. So here's the exercise. Here's a moment, and maybe the team, maybe you could darken the room some. I know this is unplanned, but maybe you could just darken the room some to allow for a, an additional space for all of us in the room. But here's your opportunity, church family, to, to close your eyes and, and, and find a posture of quiet. And maybe that's a head bowed or an eyes closed or... Maybe you're the one person in the room that needs to keep your eyes open to, to be quiet. It's, it's, a, it's totally okay. It's whatever you find that's quiet. Here's the exercise. With an emptied mind, I want you to imagine a large cardboard box. It's a large cardboard box. And it's in your attic. And for those of you who live in apartments, attics are these weird storage units that are in homes. We put stuff there, like family heirlooms and trinkets from travels or trophies from victories. We put things in there that collect dust. Things that like don't really matter, but matter just enough to keep around. And those trinkets, those trophies, those heirlooms, souvenirs, represent your old perception of Jesus. They represent your family of origin. Moments in time where you can recall someone of power or authority abusing their power or authority and you've kept it, and it's collected dust. It's a time in your life where somebody said something and hurt you in some profound way, casting doubt onto Jesus. There's a study in theology called apathetic and cataphatic. An apathetic learning process is really just a big word to understand that we must unlearn old things about God that are untrue to make space in our hearts and minds for new things about God that are true. And so right now, my guess is that every soul in this room needs to examine that cardboard box. Look at it in your mind. It's full. The church you went to, the family you grew up in, the school that you attended, the cul-de-sac you played in, the friends that you had formed for you a perception of Jesus, partially right and partially wrong. 
and you have an opportunity to allow the living, breathing spirit of the living God to take those dusty objects out of that box that God is not your version of him, take that out. That God is not your projection of him, take that out. He's not limited to your understanding of him, take that out. He is not Republican. He is not Democrat, take that out. He is not abusive, take that out. He is not coercive. He is not manipulative. He does not gaslight. Take that out. He does not side with sin or celebrate sin. Take that out. But because your mother shamed you, your father abandoned you, a friend hurt you, a church misformed you, you've got a perception where you must take those objects out. So God, we're believing that there's a room full of people with empty boxes because they have acknowledged that there's trinkets and trophies and souvenirs and things that are not of much value, but just enough value to keep around for them to hold on to. So now, church family, you have an opportunity with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, your pensive moment of quiet. You've got an opportunity to place the new, fresh, bright future into that box. Dark past, bright future. God is Jesus. Put that in the box. Jesus is not the elephant or the donkey. He's the lamb. Put that in the box. He sides with the sinner. He is the Alpha and he is the Omega. He is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He is the Prince of Peace. He does not come to take sides. He really came to save sinners and take over in a brand new structure of power as servant king. Which is different than a king with subjects within a classic monarchy. He is full of all of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, which means he is patient with you. He is kind to you. He is understanding of your plight. He is the bread of life. Put that in the box. He cancels our debt, yet incurs really no loss at all. He is patient. And unless you are making profit off of his name for some sinful agenda, he really has no history of raising his voice at you or pointing his finger in your face. He is understanding. He is loving. He is approachable. He does not use shame to motivate change. He invites, includes, and desires his best for you, which is the best for you, and offers himself freely to you and would even accept your rejection of him so as to preserve your free will. He has no interest in telling you, I told you so. God, there's a lot more to Palm Sunday than meets the eye. Palm Sunday is so much more than waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna. It is facing the music that we have a perception of you that is off. Partially right, partially wrong. God, may we empty our boxes 
and fill them back up again. In Jesus' name, the community of believers in their hearts say, amen.